The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. New York has to be one of the most photographed cities in the world. I'm not just talking about photographs made in the age of the cell phone, but since the inception of photography. I know there's Paris, Tokyo, San Francisco, and other cities that have been photographed for over a hundred years, but there's something about New York that seems forever intertwined with photography. But that's also the challenge for anyone who photographs in New York. Whether you are shooting street, fashion, architecture, or journalism, there is so much work that has come before. How do you make your work special and unique? It's not an easy feat. Karsten Steiger has taken on that challenge with his beautiful urban landscapes of the Big Apple. Now, I don't think you can explain away the uniqueness of his images based on the camera that he's using or the perspective from which he shoots. I think a big part of it lies in his story of feeling disconnected from his native land and eventually finding a home and a new identity in a city that encourages and thrives on reinvention. Well, Karsten, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure, pleasure to have you. Hello. Pleasure to be invited. You you do remarkable work, but I was really curious about how you came to the States, especially in New York. From from what I was reading, you didn't come with very much. Nope. Um, I I left Germany. Um, I studied graphic design um, in Stuttgart. And after three years, I was kind of done with it. And I quit. I actually wanted to go to Rome to art school. I wanted to apply for a scholarship and they didn't take anybody for two years. And a friend said, oh, I have a friend in New York. And I had a friend like, let's go and check it out. So we came here for a month. I felt like this is home. This is where I want to be. I was inspired. I everything about New York, I, and I went back to Germany, you know, gave away everything, and uh, came back with a big dream, and I'm still here. <laughs> well, tell, tell me about that moment about being fed up, because I think everyone experiences that, but not everyone is sort of able to use that as a launching pad for, for change. Yeah. So tell me, what was it about your life up to that point that felt stifling or frustrating, and... You know, what allowed you to make the choice to make the change? Oh, that gets personal. Okay. Uh, I um, I had a special, uh, a special, I guess, childhood. It's bittersweet, I guess, and uh, my circumstances made me just, uh, was kind of easier, I guess. My parents passed away when I was uh, 10, and I went through a few foster families and mm. um, I'm half German and half Croatian. My mom was Croatian. At this point, I um, 
I was, a, you know, Germany, was, I grew up in Germany in the Black Forest, and then I moved to Stuttgart, and everything, I never liked school, everything was very regimented and very uh, strict, and you need to have, it was very German, and wanted to be an artist or to explore or be free or I never had the environment around me. This little town I grew up there was certainly didn't have much support. And then moving to Stuttgart and, and doing graphic design and that kind of didn't, um, I, I didn't fit in. And there were certainly some personal issues with with germany i had mm -hmm. um i have to say then coming to new york i was able to just start a new life reinvent myself a new language i did speak some english because that's what we learn in school but there was everything was new for me I was anonymous i didn't need any any papers meaning i didn't need any you know, here I just know you can show up and and dream something up, and if you're good, they don't ask you for for your degree. I guess you don't have to have this whole paper trail. No, yeah. no. So I started. I I stayed with a, a friend, a acquaintance from a in in Brooklyn in Bedsty in uh, in '95, and he was a painter. And that's when I started painting, actually, oil painting. That's where I started and had a show then. I uh, stayed with him. And eventually I had, in 98, I had a, a show at the German consulate with my paintings. Yeah. So that was my beginning. So how, how long between you arriving here and realizing, okay, I'm, this is where I'm going to stay, and, and those exhibits that helped to sort of launch your professional career? As an artist, oh, I knew it the first week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I felt it. I, I, this is um, no. I knew it right away. You, you know, I didn't. Uh, I had to go back. Um, I had a few things I needed to. I had an idea to. Um, I had a commission, and I needed to gather some money. I thought I stayed there for two months and gave away my stuff, what I had, and came back with uh, two bags, a guitar, and. $500 and then I was here if I think back like <laughs> I that's why I'm doing this documentary as well what is the energy about New York and what is it if you're young and and ignorant and yeah. <laughs> that's the beauty about it and you think you can conquer the world <laughs> that's very true it's like not knowing what you have to look forward to is sort of an advantage yeah. Because if you think about anything creative or professional, you know, when you know too much, those can be the biggest obstacle, obstacles to surmount when you're trying to achieve something. Yeah. So when you got here and, you know, and you mentioned the, the, the exhibit, what were you, what were the things that you had to do in order to sort of make that, make that happen? Because, you know, you sort of, you didn't have anything to go back to. You were starting fresh, but still there's so much that you have to do in order to survive in New York. Cause it's not a, it's not an inexpensive town to try to live in. So what, how did you sort of learn how to live and do more than survive in New York, but to thrive, thrive there? You know, going back to your, to your initial question, subjectively, yeah, I, I, 
been on my own for for a long time and I always had to survive. I never really had a nine to five job. I always had to be creative and see how I do make money and I had to uh, be, you know, just to survive. So mm-hmm. in when I was in Stuttgart, I just knowing that New York existed. So I had to go back for a couple of months and it was a torturous time for me. Uh, knowing I felt I'm missing something because things are happening in New York. Every, there was nothing in Germany anymore that I was excited, not even going to a bigger city. Uh, it was all about New York. So I, being back here, I didn't have anything to go back to. I didn't have any I had to make it work. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I couldn't call mom, dad. I'm coming back. You know, I can make it. So I thought, I if I'm fighting and struggling, I might do that on the in the biggest game there is. And unfortunately, after after you've been in New York, there's nothing else. It's like why back then now i have a different thought of it you know i I would like to have a little less um more quiet life Mm -hmm. in nature have both of it but uh, back then it was all new york i need to be here well as 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 exciting as new york can be it can be really brutal especially to someone who's young and maybe naive so what were some of the sort of the biggest things that you had to learn about not just living in a different country but living in the big apple hmm I don't know. It's, um, you know, you have to fully commit and you have your up and downs. But then the, I've been, the, the people you are surrounded and they inspire you. And um, so these, they had some big highlights. And that's, I guess, that's why, why we're all here to find, um, find your next um, bliss, you know. I was obsessed actually back then with paintings. I had all these visions and so I, I needed to create and that I haven't painted since 2003 and I'm pretty peaceful with that. I found a new medium. And how did you pick up a, a, a camera? How did that start being your, your primary medium for expression? Well, uh, going back, um, in I had to, so I got married in 98. I got married in 98. We lived um, in a loft in Chelsea. And my wife, she started working for one of the first digital photo studios. And I was still at home painting and started actually doing a bike messenger for the company. It's called called DPI uh, in the West Village. So I was at home. I was a a triathlete in my other life uh, when I was young. So I was home painting and I started bike messaging for them. And later I did some styling as well. And in in 99, a friend invested in us. We bought two cameras to give us money. We bought two cameras and started our own business. And the photographer came with us. We were 
pretty lucky. We started with the whole dot-com boom, made already a few clients. And I did the retouching and the, the technical stuff. Because of my graphic design background, it was pretty easy for me. And then we were bidding for De Beers. I think it was in 2000. And our photographer didn't want to shoot jewelry. And I said, I try it. So we got a ring from, uh, from the agency. And for two days, I was shooting it and retouching it, handed it in. And... I got the job, and then I became a photographer. <laughs> you know, this is what, that's New York. This is, yeah, I seized those opportunity, and I was young, I was, I said yes to everything, mm -hmm. so that there was the door open, I was like, I can shoot it, and so I did it, and um, that was my first big job, and we um, we worked a whole summer on uh, a diamond is forever we did that we went afterwards we went on a cruise came back and then 9-11 happened so wow. yeah well that's that's quite the auspicious uh, launching of a photographic career i mean that's great and it just speaks to this whole idea of you know because a lot of people get asked do you do this and you hear so many stories about people who say yes and then they go okay how do i figure this out mm -hmm. right is that they're yeah. not gonna they're not gonna turn down an opportunity. They just go, I'm gonna figure this out. I see like hear actors about, you know, do you know how to ride a horse? And they have no idea. And they say, Yeah, of course, of course I don't have to ride a horse and, and then they go, I gotta figure this out if I wanna get this role or keep this role. Exactly, exactly. Um what is it called? What's what's the expression? Dog and pony show. Yeah. Right? And that's what I love about uh, New York, about the United States. It's about your, what can you do, you know, and not necessarily what's your, uh, what's your great. So that's been my, it's been my journey. But uh, before we go on, it's just one of the things I got to uh, uh, talk to you about, though, is just being uh, a messenger in New York on a bike. Yeah. Jesus, man. I mean. As much as I love hitting the streets of New York, the last thing I do would be riding a bike in that city. Exhilarating. It is like exhilarating. It. For me, it's perilous. But that really speaks a lot to, to, to who you are to, to have done that, period. Because I know a lot of people like me would probably never have dared. So, and I think it's probably one of the greatest ways to get to learn, to, to learn the city. Yeah. But to tell me about that, that part of learning a city. Learning its nuances as a result of just being on a bike. Because I know New York is a big part of your work, but I'm sure that that, that experience probably really informed how you see the city. Um, well, I back then when, um, when I just got, then everybody was also on the rollerblades. And if you don't have any money to go into movie theaters or restaurants, what you do in the evenings, you're on your rollerblades. So that was my first. Uh, we were blading all over. You know, I was a, a bike racers so bike handling in a it i feel very safe in a city that that was never an an issue with me so i'm not you know i i grew up on a bike so that's i guess that's a plus <laughs> i love the freedom i still now uh, i love to ride my bike but how did you did you get familiar with the city because i think it's you know you know, because you, know, you can be in New York and you can be in the subway and you're getting from point A to point B or you can be catching a cab or an Uber. And especially now with everyone on their phones, not being paying attention. But when you're on a bike or on rollerblades, you're really taking in the city in a, in a fairly unique way. So I was just curious as to how 
the city sort of revealed itself as a result of you getting around in that way? Well, it's kind of hard now. I'm such a part. I'm so familiar with with New York. Unfortunately, it's constantly changing. New York is easy because it's on a grid. It's on an island. It's really small compared to other other cities. I do love it to come go from eight. I love it being on the street and be not in the subways. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I understand the question. That's okay. <laughs> but That's okay. Uh, even walking, you know, you, you just, I love riding the bike. So. so tell me, after that initial career with the beers, you started doing more work with the agency and sort of that's the way you sort of cut your teeth as, as a photographer. So uh-huh. were you primarily doing commercial work and of what type of commercial work were you falling into? Yes, it was the beginning of digital photography. Nobody, I remember all the established photographers, they were still shooting film. Nobody believed that's ever going to catch on. And I was shooting medium format from the beginning uh, with um, Mamiya Leaf. It's a leaf back. And a it was so primitive they had a color wheel it's called a dcb it's one of a four megapixel camera and if you shoot in color you could just shoot a still life stuff because you take um it had a color wheel in front of it mm-hmm. and then takes a blue takes a picture and then the whole thing turns to red takes a picture and then it turns again to green and then it stitches all together so you had to nobody moves because you couldn't shape <laughs> that was one of the first cameras through technology over the years things changed when i upgraded to an aptus then i was able then i took that on on the roof and through the beers i you know we were I worked then with J. J. Walter Thompson first, but then with uh, Shiat. And then I got the Nextel campaign. So I was shooting for years all the Nextel phones. So one after the other, I did a lot of advertising and still life photography. So these these panoramas that you've been doing, these these vistas of the New York Mm -hmm. City, did that come as a result of of just a personal project or was it initially launched as a result of of a commercial gig that you got? It was uh, personal, totally personal. Even when I was painting, I often went on the roof for space and I just loved rooftops and loved to be above and see the view. I lived in in Chelsea, and we were looking for a studio that belonged to the Mason next to the Masonic Hall. We inquired. I met the super, and somehow that's when I started. I went on that roof on Twenty Third and Sixth Avenue mm-hmm. and started taking pictures. That's how the whole thing started. I started talking about it and asked friends to have access. It was easier. 15 years ago. Now seems there's more rooftop bars, more people are on the roof, there's more security. So back then it was a little bit better, more the Wild West. Nobody cared or nobody wanted to be on the roof, but <laughs> it has been um, the last 10 years, a lot of rooftop bars and stuff. 
And then I got lucky. A friend of mine, a neighbor, he was working for a big real estate trust. They own a lot of office buildings. And through him, I got access to buildings nobody can really get up. I had to go through to the superintendent or the engineer, and they got me up there. And then I was on top of the world and had some amazing, amazing uh, moments. And I loved them. The shift, the the change between day and night. So. What was what, what was one of those first locations that you had always been thinking about? Man, if I can ever get up to that building, I know I can make amazing shots. Which, what building? What was that experience like when you were finally able to access it? That you'd always imagined that man, when I get there, it'll be amazing. Well, there are a few of them. I want to get up. I, I have the desire. There is one building in particular i was up what it's very memorable it blew my mind it was penn plaza one it's the right in front of the empire state building there's nothing around that was when i when we opened the door and i was on this huge roof just with the empire that was a, a big aha moment <laughs> um there's a few of them but it's I've been over a hundred buildings, so and and everyone is is a little different. But the Penn Plaza one that was my first, because that was nobody can get up there besides yeah. the, the the building managers. Yeah, I can imagine with some locations like you mentioned earlier, you had relatively easy access to it. So mm. you know you could probably go back more than once. But with locations <laughs> like that one, you may only have one opportunity. One of the big things about your photographs that are so remarkable is when you get not just the the city skyline, but the sky itself playing a big role. To what extent do you have to, you know, do your research and just have an idea in terms of what the skies are going to have or or are you locked into just one particular day and you just have to take what you what you get? Um, it depends on, on, on your relationship, um, and how easy the access is with Vornado. It was pretty, uh, pretty sweet, but looking at my, at my work, there's a lot of buildings. If there's a lot of shots I have, if there is a, a plain sky or it, it could happen in the afternoon, it's super cloudy and then you get up there at eight o'clock, especially in the summertime, and everything is gone. So then I almost don't need to shoot anymore. I'm looking more for quality and for the drama in the sky. Mm-hmm. And often I I just see it. I just watch the sky, and I'm like, okay, today is, or especially after a rainstorm, then I can be sure it's going to be a very dramatic uh, sky if the sun comes out. So you have to wait, and sometimes just an hour before, like. Where am I going now? This guy, I need to go and shoot. It's a little tricky. Yeah. So once you get a, uh, do you have an opportunity to sort of scout before you go get up there to try to figure out, okay, yes, I'm on the roof of this building, but I have to sort of figure out where the best spot is. And sometimes, as I've seen in some of the videos, it's not ideally set up for a photographer with a tripod to work from. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so how do you sort of figure out all of those things when you're trying to figure out what your shot is going to be? I don't really, uh, I don't need a scout. I kind of move around. So you, if I get there early enough, I, I'm pretty quick. I can see what, sometimes I have 360 degrees and 
I'm pretty quick in, in deciding. And then I kind of rotate. So you have, I would say you have these three stages. If you, in the winter, you have a shorter time. Maybe you have half an hour, then then you're done. Uh, in the summertime, you have a longer uh, sunset. So the sun can be still up and it creates these beautiful long shadows um, of the buildings. And then there's a time when the sun is down, there's nothing happening. There's for 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, there is, it's it's boring. But then the, the light starts going on and then another magic is happening. So I like to shoot before, um, before the sun sunset. And then when the lights go on till it gets dark, and then I usually rotate. I, I run on that corner, and then I go back that. So I, I constantly move. I'm not averse to heights, but I don't go actively looking for them. Uh-huh. And I've seen you be at literally at the edge of a building making a, a, a photograph. For you, that's obviously not not an issue. But you know, what sort of safeguards have you taken or not taken sometimes in order to get the shot? None of them. I just, <laughs> I don't. I don't drink. So, I two years ago, I'm worked on a project, and I just had a. Um, I have an installation with around thirty eight images at twenty eight Liberty. With them, two years ago, they got me on the window washing rig. It's a sixty story building downtown. Oh, wow. So I had to shoot for the building, um, the elevation from the how um, is the thirtieth, the twentieth, and the tenth floor, and they asked me, Carson, would you mind to go on the window washing rig? And I was like, of course not. Um, I had to get all these insurance, and when we were up there, we were all the camera, the tripod, ourselves. We were on a harness. That's the biggest safety thing I had, actually. I, I was out with a it's a two man rig, and the guy who got me out there, he just the first time he said, because we were looking at the World Trade Center, and mm-hmm. he said, "Oh, you know, in January there was an accident. The window washer <laughs> are they were hanging um, the thing." He just explained about the 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 measures about the the steel cables, and now they have to double it up. And then while we're up on the on the rig, he's telling me the story. It's like I don't want to know that. Yeah, please <laughs> save that for after we're done, please. <laughs> so I did a little research after and looked what really happened. And a, a cable snapped, and the guys were hanging on the rig for for quite a while till they figured out how they they get them back in on the World Trade Center. Oh my god! Yeah, but um, otherwise I just go there i'm trying to not to fall off but that's all a part of it yeah well one of the things that i'm sure sure you contend with when you're shooting there is sometimes this is like your only opportunity to make the photographs Mm -hmm. and it's stability i mean yeah you're working on a tripod but you know there's going to be wind there is going to be the sway of especially very very tall skyscrapers that's just natural just to the nature of the building yeah. Um, what sort of considerations do you have to make in order to ensure that you're going to get a sharp, sharp photograph? Um, I haven't thought about moving the building. Moving as I as I shoot, as it gets darker, I have a longer exposure. In the beginning, it might be a sixtieth of a second, mm-hmm. and then it could be till thirty seconds. 
just a, a sturdy. I had times it's it's windy, but I have different tri- tripods, and it's a heavy camera. Um, usually, I get up there with my uh, smaller camera to do a time lapse. I set that up first, so that's going individually. Sometimes I, I was afraid of of the small camera to be blown off, but my my big camera it's it's really it's it's heavy, and um, yeah, so I, I never had I don't have any any problems with that so when you're working you mentioned that you're working with medium format so are you working from just a single photograph are you making multiple photographs and putting them together are you compositing to any extent tell us about that aspect it's just it's just one one shot in the beginning i did a few exposures but with with the camera i'm it's a mamiya creator 80 megapixel and there's such a dynamic range, so I can't pull so much out of it on a computer. So I don't need to, there's so much in the image that I don't need to bracket my image or I don't have to stitch it together. So when you started putting these these, these photographs together, you, t- you told us before that it was a personal project. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a personal project is, is great, but... Sometimes you want people to get to see the work. So how did you sort of start thinking about how to get the work out there? Well, I built a website and then, of course, I've been sharing it with friends on on your social media. And over the last years, I have this, I had a show last year at the German consulate with um, 18 images. And that collection is now at the Sundance office. And with this 28 Liberty project I have, this is a pretty big installation I'm, I'm having. And so that's exciting. Even when we installed it like a month ago, just the people walking through the lobby and looking and taking picture. It's, it's nice. I, I enjoy people in looking at it, enjoying our city. I had a, a different thought. What I The pictures are wonderful, and I love them. I love creating them. But what I do love the most, getting up on different roofs and exploring and being up there and having that, that moment with the city. And uh, that's why I'm doing a documentary. So I thought I need to show that. I need to bring people up there and I want to show them what I'm doing. And so that was my, that's what I wanted to show my work. That's, you saw probably a few, a few stuff on my, my website. Yeah. But that's what I'm interested to show people what I'm experiencing up there. Everyone I took, I invited to join me. It's, it's, you get so giddy. It's, it's hard sometimes to come down back and deal with, with traffic, the people, with subway. It's such a, a downer sometimes after, <laughs> after you've been up there and, and I see it with other people. Everybody's happy taking picture and there's so much to see and discover. And New York looks different from, from 600 feet up in the air. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting that the perspective you bring, cause I've seen countless photographs of New York city, uh, like you said, a lot of stuff that's on the street, uh, mm-hmm. stuff that's been done like from helicopters, uh, yeah. from very elevated. But some, but your photographs sometimes are not. It's just not just the issue that you're a little closer to the ground than you know than some sort of helicopter. There's a there's an immediacy to the photographs mm-hmm. that that's really wonderful. But you're really able to experience the city, I think, in a unique way that sort of reveals all this, all the different things that make New York New York. I mean, you have all this 
disparate types of architecture, but you're able to sort of compress it within a singular frame where you're able, able to sort of take them in in relationship to each other. Does that make sense? I know it's wonderful. I, I, I don't do things consciously. Um, I, I like to hear what people think about it or how they feel. You know, I, I say yes. I, <laughs> what I want, well, for me it's important not to shoot up or down to keep my, my horizon and don't have the building kind of collapse mm-hmm. or I, I always try to keep it straight, a straight view. And over the last years, I uh, I started getting a little closer. I shoot wide with a 35 uh, millimeter lens on a medium, but then I started going zooming into buildings or do close-ups or have more. Um, I've been playing with that, and that seems like there's a whole another part of of work it comes out of that yeah the compression really gets to that feel of things being relative to each other where mm-hmm. you can sort of contrast and compare the facades of all the different things that you're including in the frame in a way that's very unique to the sp- perspective from what you're shooting from well when i you know when i started i know i always collected books uh from new york and i certainly seen some amazing beautiful pictures which inspired me and like wow i want to do that and then the whole aerial stuff i have one image i uh, i shot a friend has a has a tesna it was years ago we got clearance to fly over central park and um, I have one image I love. Uh, you see, you see the the park. I have such uh, a, those images I have over the years. Things you can't—they don't exist anymore because the skyline has so dramatically changed, and the body of work and the quality. Not everybody can take pictures and does with their iPhones, but I have these high-res images over the last decade. And helicopter, it's you can you can finish. I could do something in two days. You know, <laughs> you mm-hmm. just fly and keep shooting, and then you could have two thousand images. But that's not what I'm interested. I'm always looking to get the because um, sometimes you walk out. The worst thing is if I'm traveling and I see on Facebook that so many people photograph the sky because you have. Maybe a couple times a year you have these spectacular pings or orange where Mm -hmm. you can see it on social media. Everybody takes a picture in New York. And these are the moments I'm trying to capture. (laughs) And there are just a few of them. And now that's more what I'm aiming. Not not necessarily having a lot, but having quality. And I know what, what I would like to sell or just putting a collection together with my images like uh it's there's just a few of them i personally like wow okay that's a great shot when you made the choice to exhibit the the work and share it in that way um had you always envisioned envisioned that the prints were going to be big and what sort of choices and considerations did you need to make in terms of printing your photographs very large Yes, uh, certainly. Um, I always thought big. Uh, they have to be seen big. And because of the, um, the camera I'm using, you, you can print them huge. I just looked at my older work um, prints I did. They were um, 30 by 40. 
now the largest I have is like two meters seventy by one eighty, and I wow. I had to store it somewhere because I can't fit it and none of the elevators it has to, I don't know where to put it. So a couple of years ago, I got a commission to do the Hugo Boss office. They moved and they ordered 33 images. And then I had to find a, a vendor, how I'm going to produce them in masses. And I did a couple companies here in New York and uh, in the States. But then I worked with uh, Whitewall in Germany. I did some prints in, in Germany. And so... I explored that option. I did a couple tests, and I remember when I, when it came here, I started crying. It was so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, it's um, you know, it's emotional because before you collect all these images, you see them on your phone, you see them on the computer, but when it come, if it translate and you print that, it was quite um, exciting and. Even now, with that installation I have down in 28 Liberty, we did, I have nine printed on metallic paper. They're hanging on the wall. And then we have 29 we printed on a film, that we, a translucent that we have on the windows. We cover the windows. And when, we, when they went up, that was also a big wow, wow. Yeah. And I just came back from I was there down there earlier and um, yeah and looked at them again how long are the images going to be up there a year oh yeah oh, okay okay huh? oh, so people have ample time to check it out great yes yeah yeah well my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who would that photographer be and why Ooh, um, well, there was one um, photographer, and I was in in Germany. I didn't. I wanted to paint. I didn't. The photographing is easy. Everybody can take a picture. Uh, that was my attitude when I was painting, and I loved Mark Seliger's work. Oh yeah, Mark. Uh -huh. So I actually made a copy of one of his images and I painted um, the portrait, and then. Years, years, years later, I we were talking, we met, we talked on a panel together, I met him personally and became friends. So that was a, a nice thing personally to have someone whose work you love if you are a young man in a foreign country. <laughs> um, so I loved his work. So recently, um, I just had a show in, uh, in Brussels, in a group show. He shoots indigenous people around the world, um, has a book called Before They're Gone. Oh, Before They, Jimmy Nelson. Jimmy before, Nelson. Before They Pass Away is the name of the yes, book. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So I love his work. Yeah, fascinating. I always look for people who inspire or what I would love to do that. I would love to travel the world and take pictures. So. Well, I join you in that sentiment. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated uh, uh, sharing your story and, and this, especially the story behind those remarkable images. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening, and thanks to Carson for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out his work by visiting carstensteiger.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes Store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here on TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on The Candid Frame website or in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website of thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame.